There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case for one of those families. If you're new to this podcast, please go back and start with episode one to learn more details about our investigation into Debbie Williamson's murder. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. All this time passes, and I just cannot put away this case. Someone that killed that young lady is still walking away free. The great thing about the AG's office and why this was such a good fit is that they already have a criminal investigation team in place. We just created a retired homicide investigators task force. And the idea behind it is to have an elite group of really solid, experienced homicide investigators. We can't underestimate the value of just good old fashioned police work too. DNA is solving cases every day now and we certainly want to look at that, but also witnesses that may need to be re-interviewed. With the new year comes a big update. A couple of generous donors pledged a total of $10,000 for a reward, leading to the arrest and conviction of Debbie's killer. Lubbock PD added another $5,000 on top of that, bringing the total to $15,000. Anyone with information, whether you feel it's pertinent or not, is encouraged to report it to Lubbock PD's crime line at 806-741-1000. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can email your tip to tips at justiceforDebbie.com. In addition to this development, Lubbock PD has also informed us that they've picked a DNA lab to submit evidence to for retesting with new forensic technology. The turnaround time for results is usually a couple months, but we'll provide listeners with updates as allowed. Now, on to episode seven. In 1975, when Debbie was killed, Lubbock did not have a traditional coroner or medical examiner's office. For standard procedure, her body was transported to St. Mary of the Plains Hospital and her autopsy was conducted by a doctor. Scrapings were taken from underneath each of her fingernails and blood and hair samples were also collected. A pubic combing was conducted and swabs of her genitals were taken as part of the sexual assault analysis. Having worked with the medical examiner in New York City, I've had a lot of experience attending death scenes and autopsies, writing investigative reports, and deducing facts from the evidence found at these scenes. But I'm not an official death investigator or forensic pathologist. But me and George got lucky because soon after we started our Facebook group for Debbie, a woman who we're calling Jane in order to protect her identity, reached out offering assistance in analyzing Debbie's autopsy report and other crime scene factors. Jane has worked in the medical field for over 20 years, fulfilling positions like an autopsy assistant and death investigator. So Jane, thank you so much for joining me today and providing me and our listeners some of your time to help us dissect parts of Debbie's autopsy report that are pretty complicated, I think. But before we get into that, can you give us an overview of your background and your credentials and what your link is to the medical and death investigation field? Sure. I've been in the medical field for 26 years. 
I had the opportunity to become a medical legal death investigator and was also an autopsy assistant for 11 years. I gained several certifications while in the forensic field to include homicide, death investigation, natural deaths, accidental deaths, and various different other certifications. And as part of your work in that field, you attended many actual death scenes, right? Where there was a victim who was no longer alive? Correct. Okay. And then obviously as an autopsy tech, witnessed autopsies along the way as well. Yes. Okay. And if I remember correctly, you actually contacted me about Debbie's case, right? I did. I saw it on social media. It was on Facebook. I saw it on a page and reached out to you. That's awesome because I'm glad to hear that our social media and crowdsourcing efforts are making a difference. Yes. So let's go over some of the more complicated terms that are listed in Debbie's autopsy. There's actually three causes of death that are listed. And before we go to those, actually, why don't you explain the difference between the cause of death and the manner of death in terms of a death investigation? Okay, the cause of death is what actually causes the death of the person. The manner of death is there's classifications. There's natural, accidental, homicide, suicide, and undetermined. Okay. And obviously, in Debbie's case, her manner was homicide. Correct. And... Like I said, there's three listed causes of death in her autopsy report, meaning the underlying reasons as to why she died, right? Correct. Okay, so the first one is a pneumohemothorax. Can you break that down for us and explain it a little bit? Sure. Pneumohemothorax. Thorax has to do with the chest cavity. In the pneumothorax, a collection of air collects into the spaces between the thin layer of tissue that covers the lungs and the chest cavity and it can cause all or part of the lung to collapse. So if there's air getting in between the lung and the the lining, it pushes against the lung. So pneumo is air, and then hemo is blood, and it has the same concept. It's just a collection of blood instead of air between the lining and the lung. And can you explain just a little bit of what happens when a lung actually collapses? What happens is when there's air and there's blood that collects between the lung and the lining, pushes against the lung and it collapses the lung, leaving it very hard for the person to breathe. Right. It's like an exchange of air, right? Like the air is supposed to be on the inside, but in this case, it's basically on the outside. Correct. And it's pretty much just squishing the lung. Okay. And not letting the lung inflate. Okay. So the second cause of death, hemopericardium, what can you tell us about that? The heart lies inside a sac called the pericardium. And in this case, with a stab to the atrium, which is the top part of your heart, the sac filled with blood, break me if I'm mistaken, I think there was 250 cc's of blood in the pericardial sac. I believe that's correct. So 250 cc's of blood, it's putting a lot of pressure on the heart, causing the heart not to be able to work like it should. So how quickly would blood actually leak out of there into the rest of the body? This would be just a collection into the sac around the heart. Okay. And then exsanguination, also another long medical term. Can you explain that? This was listed as the third cause of death in Debbie's case. Yes. Exsanguination is severe or extreme blood loss. You have the 250 cc's of blood that's in the pericardium, but also the pneumohemothorax. There was also two liters of blood removed from the pleural cavities. Mm -hmm. From her lungs. From her lungs. So a normal person has four to five liters of blood, sometimes five and a half, up to five and a half. 
that is like 1.2 to 1.5 gallons of blood. Mm -hmm. And she's already lost 2,000 inside her chest cavity. Right. And then the amount of blood that she lost on the scene also. Yeah. That's a lot of blood. And that's where the exsanguination comes from. Okay, so she bled out. Because it was extreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so 2,000 cc's equals 2 liters, correct? Yes. Which is the amount found in her lungs. Everybody knows what a 2-liter bottle of soda looks like. That's the amount of blood that was found just inside Debbie's lungs. Correct. So is there any other significance to that that you didn't already describe in terms of that amount of blood being in that area of the body? With the hemoneumothorax, it would make it very hard for her to breathe. The uh, hemopericardium, when it puts pressure on the heart and decreases the workload of the heart, it will cause weakness. It will cause trouble breathing. And then the blood loss put together, that's some very extensive injuries. Sure. How quickly do you think Debbie went from upright conscious to unconscious? How long do you think that process probably took? I think it happened fairly quickly, within, just within minutes. Mm-hmm. So within the first minute or so where her lungs are being penetrated and collapsing, she's probably losing her ability to fight Correct. quite quickly. Yes. And then would it be the blood loss itself, you think, that would lead to unconsciousness? The mixture of the blood loss and the inability to breathe. And how long do you think her heart would have continued beating after the right atrium was penetrated? There was 250 cc's of blood in the pericardium, the sac around the heart, so it wouldn't take very long. So Jane, in the autopsy report, they actually notated the length in centimeters of some of the wounds on, particularly on Debbie's scalp. Yes. What does that tell you in terms of those lengths? Because some are pretty long. Correct. So there was two um, lacerations or short force injuries on the head. One of them was 5.5 centimeters by 2.5. And if you put that in inches, that is 2.16 inches by 0.9 inches. That's large. There was also one near the angle of the jaw that was 7.5 centimeters. And that's 2.9 inches. And that's the slash type injury to her right cheek, right? Yes. Yes. Also in the autopsy report showed that some of those stab wounds penetrated the lungs. On the, the left side, there was six penetrating wounds. And on the right side, there was five penetrating wounds. She has a total of 11 stab wounds to her actual lung. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine how that's going to bleed. Can a single stab wound to one lung cause death? If it's not medically treated, it can be fatal. Depending on the size and the location, like we discussed earlier, And any of these injuries that she has to the chest and to the lungs and to the heart, they're going to be fatal if there's no medical attention. Sure. She also had a stab wound at what they call the left axillary region, but it's in the armpit region. Mm -hmm. And it showed that it was 5 centimeters in length, but that it was 3.5 centimeters in depth. To make it more simple, that's 1.3 inches that it penetrated into the tissue. Mm -hmm. With her being a petite person, an inch into the body is pretty far. It's pretty significant. Yes. And obviously, whether it was conscious or subconscious, the killer is just aiming for vital organs. Mm -hmm. So when we had our knife expert on, as you know, because you have a photo, he presented basically a dagger type knife that's about six inches long, three quarters wide on the blade in terms of the blade part. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on whether that would be consistent with Debbie's injuries? I think that it could be consistent. Okay. So moving on to 
a little more general look. With your experience, what can you deduce from Debbie's injuries? We know that she had 10 stab wounds on her backside and seven to the front. Mm -hmm. Do you have any conclusion in your mind about the order that these injuries were maybe inflicted? In my opinion, I think the stab wounds to the back occurred first. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. I think they occurred first, and then the next fatal stab was to the heart. Uh Uh-huh. And what led you to that conclusion? During a little bit of research on the autopsy report and where the stab wounds were at on the body, there was a lot of posterior or to the back. Posterior means the back. The stab wounds posterior, they were very significant. Okay. So causing the most damage, essentially? Correct. Understood. I always felt the same way that you did, but kind of for a different reason. I imagine that she got attacked from the backside first, but... If we imagine trying to fight somebody off behind you, it's near impossible. Correct. Yeah. And so that's why I tend to think that she at least had enough fight in her to get herself turned over. Yes. You know, because that's really the only way to try to get away from an attack like that. It also showed in the autopsy report that she had a couple of stab wounds to the what we call axillary or in the armpit area Mm -hmm. of the body. She had the ones on the back and then she has a couple on each side. So I'm imagining that she was trying to fight him off and moving about. Okay, right. Making it harder for the killer to like direct the knife where they actually wanted to go. Correct. And there was also a couple of lacerations on the scalp. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to remember also that the scalp is very vascular. I mean, when you get a scalp laceration or a cut, the head wounds tend to bleed quite a bit. So going back to... The amount of blood at the scene, do you think the killer might have actually been dripping blood, uh, whether it's off the knife or their hand or their clothing, or do you think it would have been more of a contact type blood stains that they incurred? I think with all the blood loss from the head wound and the multiple stab wounds that she had, I would say that the killer became bloody. Mm -hmm. What parts of the killer themselves do you think would have got the bloodiest? I would think that the front of their clothing would be pretty bloody. Their hands, they drug her body. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of contact. With stabbing someone, you're going to be pretty close anyway. So I would say that they would have a pretty significant amount of blood on them. Okay. But I would say, especially in the hands area. Sure, that makes sense. So I imagine you've been to death scenes where the victim was stabbed before. Mm -hmm. Can you remember any that were similar to Debbie's or that would be comparable to this? No, this one, Debbie's case, that was one of the reasons I found it very interesting. Hers was a little different. I've seen bodies moved at the death scene, but nothing like Debbie's was. Moving the body from the car or beside the car to the back porch near the step, it was more like a a stage top thing. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you'd been to other scenes where a body was moved. What was usually the reason that a killer would move a body? To hide the body, pretty much. Okay. So to delay discovery? Yes. Okay. So in this case, I think they wanted her to be displayed. Unfortunately, yeah. So in terms of the number of stab wounds, which was 17, Mm -hmm. how does that compare to other stabbings you've attended? Do you feel like that's overkill, or how does that compare for you? I've seen a a body or a decedent with a a total of 130 stab wounds. I do believe it's an overkill. I don't believe this person had done anything like this before. Okay. You know, with her fighting, it got messy. Well, it forces you to be up close and personal. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Correct. And it's 
just like as we learned from our knife expert, is hard to stab somebody, actually. He said, you know, your ribs and your shoulder blades, they, they often get in the way. Yes. And a knife can even get stuck or wedged mm-hmm. between bones, which yes. is something I had never thought of. Yes. I have seen a knife stuck in a skull before. Wow, really? There's all different scenarios where the knife doesn't stay intact. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's fairly common in your experience for a knife to break during a stab attack? I've never seen it before, but it can definitely happen just depending on the brand and the type of knife and depending on if it's hitting bone or not. Because our skeletal system, you know, we have 206 bones. Mm -hmm. So when you're stabbing, you can definitely hit bone. Sure. It would almost be impossible not to, I think. What are your thoughts on male versus female attacker? Is there anything about this scene that points you in one direction over the other? I was reading through a lot of the reports, and my first thought was a female was very upset with her for whatever reason. It could have definitely been a female. Mm -hmm. But again, with the way that the body was staged after the attack, it makes me think it's male. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it could go both ways. I go back and forth as to whether Debbie would have been able to fight longer if it was a female attacker, Mm -hmm. or if because of how quickly she was ambushed and caught off guard, would it have mattered if it was a female or male attacker? Correct. Because if she was attacked from behind and stabbed from behind with the injuries that she sustained, it's not going to take very long. Right. To subdue her. And I think she was just trying to get to somewhere, you know, into the vehicle just to get away. Right. There's perceived safety if you can get to the car or even out to the road. During this fight, she's only feet literally from the street, although it was a pretty desolate area, remote. Mm -hmm. But there's perceived freedom or at least perceived escape in that direction. But unfortunately, she didn't get there. Is there anything else that stood out to you about Debbie's case? It was determined that she was not sexually assaulted. So the way they staged her was for humiliation to her and shame. Yeah, I still have control over you even in death. Correct. So you brought up staging. Is there any chance you think maybe the killer just partially disrobed her to make it look like a sexual assault just to try to redirect the investigation in the wrong direction? I don't think so, because at some point they would know that they would do testing. It might have put them in the wrong direction for just a a bit. Mm -hmm. But I think it was more of just a last hit on her saying, look, Mm -hmm. I'm shaming you. And even in death, you've been humiliated. And so obviously to move her body and partially disrobe her took extra time that wasn't necessary to the killing. Mm -hmm. So does that tell you anything about the killer? I think the killer knew her very personally. I knew that her husband would not be there. He knew that she would come out the back door. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that there was a little bit of planning in this. I don't feel like it was a very sophisticated crime. No, no, not at all. (laughs) What other elements of it to you are unsophisticated? The more stab wounds that you have, whether they're doing it because they're angry or they want to give at you, I think they were just kind of stabbing and not knowing even where they were stabbing at. It was pretty messy. I don't think they had any experience in it and it wasn't completely planned out. Yeah. Jane, you've provided us a great amount of insight today into Debbie's injuries and helped us really analyze her autopsy report and given us some great insight into her killer. I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us and really for following this case and and working alongside us in a way to hopefully find justice for Debbie. 
You're very welcome. I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to assist you guys in this. Absolutely. And of course, if you think of anything else as we go along, please reach out again. Definitely. And I'll just tell listeners, if you hear this and, and you have additional medical questions, please let us know through our Facebook group. Absolutely. And we will reach back out to Jane. Thank you so much. And I know that we'll be in touch soon. Hey, thank you so much, Jen. Cell phones, computers, vehicle data, security cameras, all digital evidence during the investigation of a crime. Today's investigators have to understand how to analyze and solve modern-day cases. That's why American Military University is on the cutting edge of criminal justice education with its Bachelors of Science in Digital Forensics. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more at amuonline.com forensics. After my conversation with Jane, I was really struck by her comments about Debbie's killer wanting to shame and humiliate Debbie in death. It reminded me of previous discussions George and I had had about the meaning behind some of the actions the killer took at the scene. Jennifer and I debated at length about the significance of some of the actions the killer took after stabbing Debbie. Moving her body from the carport to the back step and partially disrobing her were the two that caught our attention the most. Neither of these actions was required in order to subdue and kill Debbie. So why did this person feel compelled to do them? He or she took an immense risk by remaining at the scene of the crime longer than necessary, which is very uncommon behavior in cases of homicide. George and I wanted to learn more about the significance behind some of the actions the killer took at the scene. Liz was able to put us in touch with two gentlemen who serve as volunteer investigators with a nonprofit called the Cold Case Foundation. Greg is a retired FBI profiler, and Dean has over 30 years working in various capacities in law enforcement. All right, George. So we had the most fascinating conversation last week. We did. With two men by the names of Greg and Dean. So Greg is a retired FBI profiler, Mm -hmm. and Dean has decades of experience in homicide investigation and behavioral analysis. Both of them are now retired, but they both volunteer their services to cold cases via a nonprofit called the Cold Case Foundation. We wanted to talk to them because we're trying to get a grip on the behavioral traits of the person who could have committed this crime against Debbie. One thing that you and I have talked about a lot is the fact that all of the injuries to her body are basically confined to her torso area. You know, she was not stabbed in the face. Her throat wasn't slit. Most of the wounds are to her vital organs. How fascinating was it to hear what they had to say about that? Oh, my gosh. I learned so much. A lot of what I relearned from them, I had learned in college because I'd taken criminal profiling more than once at the graduate level. But they refreshed my memory, my education. It was fantastic. Yeah. And you know, what was refreshing for us too, was not just the re-education, but also the affirmation of some of the things we thought, like for instance, when it came to her face, that the killer did not stab her in the face because he or she did not want to ruin her looks. Exactly. And that they wanted this crime to be close and personal. We know this intuitively, but we haven't talked about it. When you stab someone, you're very close to their body It's not like when you shoot somebody, you shoot them, it's over, you take off. Stabbing someone's a process. There's a confrontation, there's a fight, and then there comes a magic moment where the killer takes control. Yes. Well, so for one, holding a knife in your hand, it's basically just an extension of your hand. It's almost equivalent to like punching somebody with your fist. 
And so that's why when we look at stabbings, especially where the victim is stabbed multiple times, like Debbie was, it's almost inevitable that there's a personal connection between the killer and victim because of the type of murder weapon that they chose to use. Guaranteed, if this killer wanted to, they could have found a gun, they could have shot her from a distance in the head, they could have taken a blunt object and hit her, they could have caught her crossing the street and ran her over with their car. I mean, there's so many other methods of murder that could have been used here, and yet they chose almost the most personal one and up close one. And like you alluded to, the killer definitely gained control of Debbie quickly. They must have known that she was going to put up somewhat of a fight, but because of the targeting of the vital organs, they were able to subdue her very quickly and then have 100% control of the situation from there on out. Absolutely. And the more we discuss this actually right now, I find it hard to believe that somebody would show up without any intent to harm. And then within the matter of seconds, probably, all of a sudden they're in a murderous rage. I know it can happen, but to me, it feels like this rage built up over a little more time than just a few seconds. What do you think about that? I ping pong back and forth between the confrontation and the ambush scenario, because here's the other thing. I feel like she would have more non-knife wounds, if that makes any sense, if they got into a confrontation, the person's got the knife in the pocket. It feels like that they would just attack, like they would punch her in the face, they would kick her, they would knock her to the ground, they would just start beating her in a different kind of manner. Like we would find other injuries that we didn't find. Just sitting here thinking out loud with you, it just almost seems like the person who did it went there with the intention to kill her. And it was premeditated that they were going there to kill her. I mean, it's a pretty vicious attack. I mean, they seem to have one goal in mind, which was to take her out as quickly as they thought they could. They went right for major organs that you cannot live long without, her lungs and her heart. And they succeeded in puncturing all of those. Yeah, that's absolutely the truth. So from the first stab, I don't think the intent was just to harm her. It was to kill her. So we go back to motive again. It's like, what gets somebody to that level of rage? You and me have been doing this a very long time. There's a short list that can get somebody in that type of rage. It's money, it's power, it's sex, and jealousy. There's just a few emotions that can rise you to the level where you will stab somebody 17 times and quite literally listen to them breathe their last breath, gurgling in their own blood. And you're right there, and their blood's all over you. It's on your hands, it's on your face, it's on your shirt. Yeah, and resentment was a word that they used, too. Yes, a lot of resentment. Their perception was that they had been wronged by her. Exactly. And so there's a term called coming to a boil. And something happened between this person and Debbie that brought this person to a boil. Yes. And it was finally the tipping point. And so they decided that they were going to kill her in a super personal way, but even when they're killing her, they're leaving us little clues to their identity because of, of how they perform the killing. Yes. Why wasn't there wounds to her face? That's so curious to me. It makes me think that there was a subconscious reason that this person did not attack her face. Like they almost wanted to preserve her face and she was a good looking girl. Yeah. 
And I think that may be a deep dive into the psychology of the killer or the personal relationship that this person potentially had with her or obsession. Maybe it isn't as personal as we think, but maybe it could just be someone who had an obsession with her and decided that they wanted to kill her because they couldn't have her. But they didn't want to destroy what they were infatuated with, which was her face. And I also tend to think if this was perpetrated by, say, a female rival who was jealous or upset with Debbie, that they would have gone after her face, maybe in death, like maybe after they subdued her, since they stayed on scene anyways, you would think they would have wanted to destroy her good looks or at least leave her face down so that her good looks aren't showing. But we know that neither of those happened. Debbie was left in a position of being humiliated and disrespected. Refresh us with Greg and Dean's thoughts about this aspect of it. Right. The fact that she was partially disrobed to expose her private parts, her genital areas, is very humiliating. No matter how you're found, where you're found, who finds you, even though you're not alive, it's still embarrassing as a victim to be found that way, to just be totally exposed And to have, again, no control. You can't change it. You can't fix it. You can't cover yourself up at that point. The killer has, I think Greg and Dean referred to it as their last coup de grace by leaving her in the manner that she was left and also under the light. He put her basically on display. Now for who? We don't know yet. But I thought that was a really interesting phrase that they used in terms of his last coup de grace, and it made total sense. Yeah, actually dragging her back. You know, I think we've talked about this some, too. The killer actually took her to the spot on the entire outside property that was the most lit. It wasn't well lit, but it was the most lit. We've speculated that maybe the killer brought her to that spot so that he could look at her, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they brought up just a phenomenal point that you and I had both forgotten, that a knife is a phallic symbol. Yes, And the killer actually had the last sexual encounter with Debbie that she would ever have in her life. Yes. Because when you're thrusting a knife into someone, it's the same as committing a sex act with the same person from like a a subconscious mental standpoint. And so I thought it was so interesting. I think it was Greg that said this person was getting the last gratification from her in this way. Yep. Yes. Not to mention the partially disrobing her, too. That's a very intimate act. And so the killer got the last intimate act with her and the last intimate symbolic sexual act with her, too. Right. It's all about control. Yes. The overtones of control. You know, this person is taking a tremendous risk staying there. Somebody could show up at any minute. Mm -hmm. A car could drive by. A person could walk by. But the urge to do this to her the way they did it is so powerful that they're risking getting caught in the moment to stay there, disrobe her, do all of these things. It's a fascinating examination into the mind of a killer. For sure. And one of my favorite lines that I say frequently is that every action a killer takes at a crime scene has meaning behind it, whether it's a conscious or subconscious decision. And so there was a lot of actions taken at Debbie's crime scene that did not need to be. There was no need for this person to drag her body and then partially disrobe her. Absolutely no need for that. They had some sort of compulsion, apparently, to do that. And like you said earlier, that gets us into the mind of this killer. And we ask ourselves, why? Something else that I've been thinking about a little bit is whether the actions Debbie's killer took indicate that the person was 
organized or disorganized, which are kind of older terms in behavioral analysis, but I still think they're applicable because organization at a crime scene can indicate one type of killer and disorganization can indicate another. Like, if they brought the weapon with them, which we basically know they did, with the intent to use it, that's an organized trait because it indicates some pre-planning. But then the pulling down of her pants and like the breaking of the illogical window to stage a burglary seems so unsophisticated and just immature. That was obviously a ruse and a bad one because the most logical thing to do, and I think I told you this at the time, why didn't they just bust out the glass door? Right, in the carport. In the carport, because it's right there. It's ground level, so if you bust it out, you can walk through it without getting cut. Well, here's the problem. It was secured in a way that it couldn't be opened. So whoever killed her had to have known that that was not in use. So they just randomly broke another window because they were in a panic mode and they didn't know what they were doing at that point. Yeah, I just want to clarify for listeners. So on the inside of this sliding glass door in the carport, Doug and Debbie had a china cabinet blocking the door. So it was not usable. So what George is saying right now, it's almost like the killer knew that it wouldn't be advantageous to break that window because they already knew that a burglar could not get through that door slash window into the house. So they picked the next one, which also would be basically impossible to break in through, like you just explained. I mean, it's obviously a red herring. I'll tell you something that wouldn't have been disorganized at the time, but it could be considered disorganized now, is if the killer actually went into the house and maybe washed off. You think anybody would take a risk like that? I think it's possible. That is super risky. I think it's possible. I don't think we can rule it out. Wow, I hadn't really contemplated that anybody would do anything else on that site after moving her and disrobing her. I, I just imagined them making sure they had that knife and running and getting out of there. You know what? That would be the most likely scenario. But you've also got to remember something. This person is covered in blood. They're getting into their car. Now, this is 1975, so they don't have DNA testing and all that. But anybody of any intelligence at that time would know that if the police see a blood stain or something in your car and you're a suspect. Yeah, a car full of blood. Yeah, so we have to think that this killer either cleaned that blood off at the scene. We were told that there was a um, hose not too far from there in the flower bed area. So they could have potentially washed themselves off there or they could have went into the house and washed themselves off in the house. We know that they collected things out of the house. So we could be sitting here right now and there could be a DNA profile just sitting on some random object that they collected from the house that could tell this whole story. Something that just came to mind, though, if they knew Doug's schedule, then they could have felt safe going into the house to clean up, knowing that... There was ample time before Doug stopped by, in theory, if he went to make the bank deposit that night, or that they knew Doug was stuck at the restaurant until at least midnight when it closed. So I suppose even though it is incredibly risky, in a way, they could have felt safe knowing that there's no chance Doug is going to come home at that time and discover them. And here's the thing. How long does it take a killer to clean up adrenaline's pump in there in full-on get this cleaned up mode and get out. So I think it's possible. I just don't want to dismiss the possibility that the killer did go in the house. 
No, that's fair. I'm glad you brought it up because I don't know that I would have really considered someone taking that risk. But the more we talk through it, maybe it really it's not as risky as it appears to be. So this was not a super well-planned out thing, but I still think that the person did some planning. You know, obviously there's a control issue here. This person has never had any control over Debbie. She's probably had the control over them, Mm -hmm. which was probably part of what led to this rage and this killing. And also the killer in doing what he did and leaving her the way he did, he's dictating to her now how she's going to be found Mm -hmm. and probably who she's going to be found by, which is her husband. I mean, most likely the killer had to know Doug was the most likely person to find her, don't you think? Absolutely. Greg and Dean were very specific about that. Where she was placed was very specific to Doug finding her there. Yeah. It was far enough away from the road that no one was going to see her without a direct light being shined back there. Mm -hmm. And quite literally, she is placed in the path that Doug will have to walk to get into the house. That's correct. So there's no way that Doug's not going to be the one to find her. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the killer was trying to punish Doug in addition to punishing Debbie, obviously, by taking her life. It was twofold motivation there. There's a couple of things that we've talked about. Why didn't the killer, you know, drag the body into the house? Why didn't the killer drag the body out into the yard? Mm -hmm. Why didn't the killer put her body in her car? Why didn't the killer put her body in a car and drive away and dump her body someplace else? You know, there's all sorts of different rationale and reasoning. The killer put her right where Doug would find her. Exactly. And in fact, I had asked Greg and Dean, did they think that Doug was actually the primary target of this? But they don't tend to think so. They agreed with us that the killer wanted Doug to suffer and wanted to punish him for some perceived offense or whatever it is. But it's clear that the killer was also punishing Debbie through this act. And they made the fantastic point that if Doug was a target, that's who the killer would have gone after. And then an even better point was that if they'd killed Doug, Debbie would have been left as a widow. And then the killer could have kind of like swooped in to try to rekindle this relationship or, or build a relationship or whatever the previous goal had been of this person. You know, he could have swooped in to console her and like be the hero in the whole situation. Something just came to mind. What if the killer went there with the purpose to frame Doug for this murder? Do you think that there was enough thought process put into this for the person to maybe be trying to do that? Yes, I do. It is very possible the person went there with the intention of trying to frame Doug for this murder. That is very, very possible. Doug was known to leave the pizza inn to run errands, go make bank deposits. We talked to him. He said this was very common practice. They would have expected him to leave at some point to make the deposit. And of course, you know, going through some of the information we've received, from people who gave statements at the time, several people talked about this bank deposit. And so people knew this was a habit. Is it just coincidental that she's found in an exact spot where probably only Doug can find her? Right. Who else was going to find her? I mean, maybe her parents. Yeah. If Doug had called them and raised the alarm and he couldn't leave and they went over there, but... But we got to remember something too. The only reason Doug was calling her repeatedly that night was because he was busy and he needed her to show up and help. Right. If it was a slow, quiet night like Sunday nights are in many southern towns back in the 70s where nothing was going on after 8 o'clock, you would just expect Doug to be able to come and go as he pleased. Right. Yeah. And if this person did have that forethought of trying to frame him, then that's certainly premeditation. Yeah. 
the person could have went there with the intention of killing her, killed her, and then realized, aha, if I get out of here in time, this can actually be a setup on Doug. I think that if the person went in there with the premeditation to kill Deborah Sue Williamson, they were going to stab her to death, they were going to kill her. I think they probably thought these other aspects out a little bit too. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, Doug will have to go make a deposit around 1030-ish when he normally goes. Mm -hmm. And he'll stop by the house and he'll find her and he'll be prime suspect from that point on for the rest of time. Yeah. Because then the police could blame Doug for staging the scene to look like something else, which, of course, makes you look suspicious if it's true. Right. Honestly, how would he argue otherwise? Other than uh, he would have had to dispose of the knife somehow very quickly. But yes, yeah, I could see where this could have taken a completely different trajectory. Yeah, I totally agree. Or maybe this person just got lucky. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't premeditated in that sense, but maybe they just got lucky. Maybe if Doug had showed up, oh, well, they're going to blame it on him. Okay, I'm in the clear. Right. And going back to the 17 stab wounds, something else that I been debating a lot is was that indicative of overkill or is that how many stab wounds it took to subdue her so we know that several of debbie's stab wounds were fatal but none were immediately fatal where i'm leaning now is that it took 17 stab wounds to get her to stop fighting because we know that she fought hard do you agree with that or do you think it's more of an overkill situation I am in agreement with you. 17 to an average person, that seems like a lot, but it's not. I read about cases where it's 50, 60, 70 stab wounds because a person was in a frenzied rage. And it seems like this one, I think that what you said is just spot on, that the number of stab wounds is commensurate with what it would take to get her to stop, to get her to where she's not fighting back anymore. I agree with you. I don't think it was overkill. I think it was just enough to kill. You know, another thing is, too, is that the killer felt justified in what he or she did. They probably don't have remorse for what they did. And they may have never killed again. This was just a a one-time thing. You know, and that's common. Most murderers only kill one person. That's statistically proven. We even asked him about that, too. Yeah. One of us asked, do you think that this person went on to kill more people? But they don't. I know I feel the same that they do in that this person probably only killed Debbie and that's it. Because as Greg and Dean said, Debbie was the target. The killer took care of her, got his satisfaction out of it, felt that she deserved what she got and just went on the life. Like you said, no remorse. You know, we don't know that the killer wasn't questioned. We've had access to some documents and some things that are relating to the case, but we most certainly have not seen everything that was done in this case. So they may have, and it may have spooked them. You know, maybe they got close enough to an arrest, and I thought, okay, I can't ever do that again because I nearly got caught the last time. Sure. And, yeah, just kept themselves guarded for the rest of their lives. I mean, I I don't want to speculate on what this person went on to do in terms of romantic relationships in their lives, but we've seen it before where a killer actually just avoids getting attached to somebody else because they realize what happened the last time they got attached and things didn't work out the way they wanted and realize the danger that they put themselves in in terms of legal ramifications. Right. Figure they got away with it once. The easiest way is to just not get in any serious relationships and not get attached to anybody in the future. That's the thing that goes even beyond just not getting attached from a personal being hurt perspective. 
they also know what they're capable of if they get mad enough. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so they know that they've gone to this place, you know, famously there are, are lines in the sand. And once you cross a line, you can cross it again. Exactly. You know, one thing that fascinated me when we were speaking with them is we started talking about the amount of blood that would have been transferred at the scene. And they said that quite a bit of blood was probably transferred from Debbie to the killer. And so they actually thought it was very possible that the killer may have actually gone and cleaned up in the house. Yeah, that's correct. In fact, they stated they thought that's why the back door was standing open. Yeah, which I never thought of. I know. Not that Debbie left it open, but that the killer opened it to go in and clean up and just, you know, trying to touch the least amount of surfaces possible, just left it standing open when they exited the house. Right. Or maybe they just fled. So there's a number of reasons, but I did think that was fascinating. Never thought about the door being left wide open by the killer because the killer actually went in the house. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a scenario that we can't disprove at this point. So we've got to add it to the list of considerations. Absolutely. And keep that in mind, you know. And my understanding is police did do some dusting for fingerprints at the scene. Mm -hmm. We don't have those specific results, but when they're going back over all this evidence, you know, one fingerprint on the screen door or the sink in the bathroom or something that they dusted, that could be it right there. And we also know, too, that there's at least one or two pieces of evidence that have never been disclosed anywhere mm -hmm. that they have in their possession somewhere. We don't know what those items are. They've never spoken about it. We haven't pushed the PD to tell us what those things are or try to figure out what they are on our own. You know, we're just going to let them do their due diligence as far as getting those things tested. And then we get closure just through that. That would be incredible. That's one of the goals. <laughs> yeah. Even if we don't end up with a full DNA profile, we could end up with a partial, which is still helpful. Mm -hmm. And there's still a lot of other ways to solve crimes. So, Jennifer, I thought you asked them one of the most important questions during our lengthy conversation with Greg and Dean. And that was if they thought there was a single killer or there were multiple killers involved in this crime. Didn't you think what they had to say about that was fascinating? Yeah, it presented the scenario of two people possibly being involved and asked their opinion on that. And they were pretty adamant that this was most likely just a single killer. But they gave some good reasons why their thought process is in that direction and reminded us that if there's a homicide with two or more perpetrators involved, there's usually a sexual assault that takes place. And we know in Debbie's case, at least with regards to a traditional sexual assault, there was none. In addition to that, they brought up the point that you get more than one person involved. That's two people, three people, however many now that got to keep their mouth shut, never tell anybody what happened, not turn on each other if the pressure gets to be too high. It's just incredibly risky. And why would two people have this much anger and resentment towards Debbie and secondly, Doug? The way that they laid it out for us, I agreed. It didn't make sense that two people would have been there. Yeah, I think the direct quote was, it's a very personal homicide. That is the direct quote, yep. And it's not just two people having to keep their mouth shut as opposed to one. You're also just going to leave more evidence. Yeah. Hair and fingerprints. And the crime was clumsy to a degree. Mm -hmm. There was a clumsiness about it. If it was multiple people, you would think that they would be able to control Debbie more. And also another aspect of it, if there was more than one person involved, 
you would think that at least one of them would not have an emotional attachment to her mm-hmm. and they would just say, Hey, just slit her throat. You know, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Or we'll hold her down and we'll just bash her head in so we don't have to get blood everywhere. It wouldn't be a knife. Mm -hmm. So obviously the person that did it was very emotionally attached to her from their perspective. Yeah. Another fascinating aspect of this, they told us that the person who did this would have to be very familiar with the home. Yes. And very familiar with the yard and property and very familiar with the family schedule. Yes. And that really validated the conclusions that you and I have come to as well, because we feel exactly the same. In fact, they said this was not a stranger homicide. I can't say 100% definitively we can rule out a stranger, but I'm going to say 99.9%. We can forget about this possibly being a stranger homicide with all that we know now. Yeah, it's almost an irrelevant thought at this point. If it was a stranger, this is just not how this crime would have went down. No. A stranger's going to be waiting outside hoping she walks out the door. I don't think so. Right. They would have none of the knowledge that this killer had. Right. It's a very short list of people who knew where Debbie lived, had been there before, knew the lighting situation, knew she used the back door, knew she was going to exit it. How many people can be on that list? In my mind, about three to five. Tops. Well, and also who would have the motivation to kill her. And that too. Yeah. With all that, I guess that's probably the key on that list is who has a motivation to kill her in addition to all of that. So not a very long list. Nope. And we're going to narrow it down even more. Hopefully we're on the path to narrowing that down to one person. Exactly. Oh, we're, we're on the path. The brainstorming session we had with Greg and Dean was invaluable, and we're continuing to evaluate their insight and use it to analyze our list of suspects. If the information presented here sparks any ideas with listeners, please reach out to us or make a post on our Facebook group for Debbie. We welcome any and all ideas, and as I frequently tell people, the more brains working on this, the better. Next time on Break the Case... That's where I met Debbie, and we instantly clicked. We just clicked. We worked a lot of shifts together. And my most favorite thing I remember about Debbie is her laugh. She had just this enormous, almost cartoonish laugh that was just priceless. And I had the radio on. It was Texas news, so it made the news everywhere at the time. But I remember the disc jockey saying something about a murder in Lubbock, and the victim was Deborah Sue Williamson. And I paused for a second and said, are you kidding? Oh, my gosh. I was just terrified. I mean, a friend of mine had just been brutally murdered. One of our friends was a possible suspect, or not just one of our friends, several, many people that we knew. Join AMU's Cold Case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jarrett on our investigation into who really killed Debbie Sue Williamson. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. You can also follow us on Twitter at the handle BreakTheCaseAMU. Tips may be sent to tips at justiceforDebbie.com. Anyone reporting tips is assured confidentiality. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers, Leachin Cranick and Andy Crow, with support from Lisa Tanis. 
Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Case Breakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.